Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 to 24, soon to include sizes 26 and 28. I'm actually expecting the fifth date dress, which is the first style available in a size 3X, which is equivalent to a 26-28, to come in next week. So really, really soon I'll be able to just say 2 to 28. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size and every single piece in the collection makes your life so much easier. You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is amazing. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee. If you would like to order now and want to have it ship after the nine days, that's not a problem. Simply put hold order in the notes at checkout and I'll make sure it's shipped after Tishbev. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowland Sports Complex in New Jersey, and to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in, and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rivky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rick Gitzkowitz, and on today's show, I sit down with an author and fellow granddaughter of Holocaust survivors to discuss her grandmother's story. She shares why she saw her grandmother, Rosie, as a perfect character, why she felt it was important to tell the good parts of Rosie's Holocaust story, and centering a Jewish girl who saves herself. Nehama Birnbaum has done the incredibly important and difficult task of taking her grandmother's Holocaust story and writing it down in a fantastic novel, The Redhead of Auschwitz. Thousands of people have gotten to know Rosie through the book and her outreach, including me. I always smile when I see Rosie and Nehama pop on my screen, and I'm so glad I got a chance to speak with Nehama. What was I like as a kid? I always, I think I was a little bit more of a thinking kid than, than maybe what was normal. I always liked thinking. Um... I loved writing right away, um, a little bit more like, I wouldn't say shy, because I don't think I was shy, but a little bit more, um, this is a good therapy session, what the heck was I like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should delve into that more. You mentioned that you loved writing, is that something that you yeah. always thought that you would do? No, I never thought that I was going to do it because it's, you know, I'm not, it's, it's still a, it's not a lucrative business. It's not something that you can actually, it's very like hard to say, oh, I'm going to have it as my job. But I loved writing right away. And I credit a lot of my teachers in elementary school for teaching me. I remember, I remember from very young. I first started loving to read. I loved reading. 
um, you know, like the Jamie Jones. And I, I remember we got like, I think it was a Scholastic magazine mm-hmm. that you could pick books and buy them. I remember like running home from school the day that the Scholastic magazine would come. And I would first thing grab the magazine, go to the room, lock the door and circle. Cause we got to pick like a few books that we can order. And I would circle and circle and circle all the books. And then I had to like narrow it down to the ones that I was able to order. I, I was so excited about books always. Um, I remember feeling that excitement of learning how to read, of finding out there was this story there that I could understand now. Even as a, a little kid, I remember that, oh, like I can see what's going on in these pages. There's a whole character, a whole story, a whole life that I'm going to be getting to know now, even if it's fake. I didn't necessarily know that it was fake at that point. But even now, I like seeing, like I like, I'm the nosiest person in someone else's fake life. It's so fun. I can really get to like, leave leave the chit chat, leave the small talk, leave the, the social niceties and just, what are you thinking? Um, so I enjoyed that a lot. I loved books. Um, and then I, I remember loving to write. I think my first memory of really enjoying writing was in fourth grade. I wrote a picture book. We had to do picture books. Um, and I loved that. Did you ever read the book, Um, what's it called, Frindle? Where the whole class yes, decides- Yes, I loved Frindle. Loved Frindle. That's what you reminded me of, yeah. where the whole class yeah. decides that a pen is now called Frindle and they make Frindle, a new right. word. And I, right, I love the, the, I always liked the words and, and language and I, but, but even more than that, I loved stories and um, books. I just loved books and I loved thinking of ideas and writing it down and making a book out of it. Um, so I remember loving to do that. I remember learning like um, different things and it just popping out of my memory of like, automatopoeias of like crash and and I love that but I remember really in seventh grade I had a great teacher her name was Miss Elias um shout out to her she hears us now she was teaching us metaphors and similes and um language and stories we also wrote another picture book then and I loved it I put so much into the picture book we were illustrating it um and writing it and I loved writing that picture book um so I just always loved doing that and then I remember in ninth grade writing short stories I like thinking of you know I think I wrote about someone from Sparta and someone from Athens probably because that's what we're learning about in history and how they became friends and I just like thinking of ideas and putting it down um, but I never thought that it could be a job. Um, right. And how do you and, make that a job? And that's what it turned into for you. Um, you are best known as the author of The Redhead of Auschwitz, which is a book that tells your own grandmother's story um, through the Holocaust and how she survived and um, and her whole experience through that. What made you decide to write that down? Why did that feel important? I'm going to assume that you were just always close with your grandmother and like you, because right. like every family that is a descendant of Holocaust survivors has their own 
stories, right? So what made you yeah. think this should be in a book? So I loved, loved my grandmother growing up. I always, I mean, more when I was in high school, she would talk, she was always telling me stories and I loved her stories. Um, even though they were really horrible stories, the way that she said them over was in such a uh, empowering way. Um, and such a, to me, she was like a character in the book because she was brave, she was a hero, and she was also like a little girl who loved life. She was like a a character for me. She, I loved her personality. It was very different than mine. She was more of a performer. She loved dancing. She loved singing. Um, she loved being on stage. I could really relate to that. Um, she was more outgoing than me, more stubborn in the best of ways than me. So we didn't have the same personality, but when she described her stories to me of growing up and the way she felt and her choices and her emotions and even things as a child, I was so drawn to it. And I think she really taught me how to, how to tell a story, the way that she just told her stories, not even, she didn't write it down. She didn't, she didn't have, it wasn't her career at all, but she built up the tension and she was dramatic. And then she was also so poetic in her way of saying things. Even I remember I was a little girl and she told me that she would see if she had a crush on this boy who would come to her house for breakfast. And she would see if she, if he liked her back, she would pick the petals and one petal would be, he loves me. One petal, he loves me not. One petal, he loves me, he loves me not. And if the last petal was on, he loves me not, she would throw away that flower and pick another one until the last petal was on, he loves me. And just that way of her describing herself, um, showing her stubbornness and showing her bleak in herself and showing her, I'm not taking, I'm not taking no even from a flower. The boy, I don't think he ever noticed her you know but it wasn't about that it was about her personality and her feistiness I loved how she built up that character for me and I really wanted to capture that and also I had this incredible relationship with her really incredible and the more she's not here the more um I see how incredible it was and it's funny because we like I learned a lot with writing that one of the main things about characters is that the character cannot be a perfect character and things are not black and white and the relationships are not always easy and you have to depict both things in there of the you know you can't have just a perfect relationship and you can't have just the perfect character nobody wants to see that because that's not real life and I embrace that when I'm writing other things but there's something about a grandmother for me, and I don't think it's for everybody, but I think there's something for a lot of people that's special about a grandmother is that it doesn't have that tension so much. It doesn't have to have that tension. And I think that's so powerful and so unlikely because a parent could love the child even more than a grandparent does, but they really have a job there to help them, to, to give them discipline, to you know, you don't want to raise feral children, which most children are. And I could have been, you know, 
you don't have, a, so you have that tension with the parents and you have things like that. And I have the best relationship with my mother. I'm, I love her. Um, that's not to say, but she had a harder job with me than my grandmother did. And she was able to, and I'm so grateful to my mother. She was able to give me to my grandmother and just let me enjoy that plain, plain, no tension love. It was just love. And then if there was anything that there needed to be worked on with me, back to my mother. So I love that relationship with the grandmother because I was, when, when I was thinking and writing about her, I was thinking, well, how do we, how do we capture the, the tension? How do we capture the real relationship? How do we capture the, uh, the good and the bad? And I was like, I'm not coming from a place of delusion. A grandmother's just easier to have an easier relationship with. If you have a grandmother like me, probably that's the truth. But in general, it's, I think easier with a grandparent and grandparents love is like that. So I, I appreciate that a lot. And um, now I got lost in my thoughts. We're good. What, what do we, what, what was the question? No, that, that, that was fun. I'm curious. Can you, for anyone who might not be familiar, can you tell, um, you know, give us a little bit of a, a synopsis of your grandmother's story. Tell us what she was like when she was growing up and, and, and what her experiences were like. Yeah. So she, oh, so yeah, you were asking like, what, what made me want to write her story? So that what made me write her story was that as I was growing up, I read a lot of World War II books and a lot of Holocaust books. And there was two things that bothered me a lot. There was one thing was that it was really, really um, sad and it only focused on the sad parts of the experience. And the Holocaust, I don't think there was anything sadder. It was the saddest thing that ever happened. But living with my grandmother, I thought, if people are only hearing this side of the story, it's really half the story. It's not the whole story. They they were coming from beautiful lives and not just beautiful lives, lives and the good and the bad. And I wanted to incorporate both of that into it, not just cut to the point of horror and terror and give it to people and let them read that. I wanted a fuller picture. This was a, you know, a person. This was a life, not just what happened to them. So that's why I really wanted to write my grandmother's story because she was such a person and everybody is. And she was such a, a life and the Holocaust um, to be, you know, it did define her a lot and it's, it's didn't define her fully though. It really didn't. She was so much more than that. And I wanted to convey that in the book. This is a person, this is a life, and what happens to people is not them. Like it's a character first, not just the plot. So that's what I wanted to do with that. And then also I as a girl, I read a lot of books. Um, it was always someone else saving the Jewish girl, if mm -hmm. the Jewish girl was in the book at all. And I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't like that. And I said, here I am with the most feisty. Um, Holocaust survivor ever. I want her side of the story being told. She didn't rely on a uh, non-Jew. I mean, there was not, it wasn't an option. I'm sure she would have loved that. But we always have in, in a little bit of a way to save ourselves. And she was a hero. She was a strong woman character. 
Um, and she wasn't just like this passive victim Jew relying on nothing. Uh, she had her belief and she had her faith and she had also her, her, her conviction in herself. And she, the, my favorite story that she told me was when she went to Auschwitz, all the girls said, we're going to heaven from here. And they were, you know, she, the way she described it, they were taller than her, they were stronger than her. She was very short. If you see her picture, she's this tiny little woman. They were taller than her, stronger than her. And they said, we know. And they had the smoke above their heads. And the Nazis had told them, you see this smoke? This is your parents burning. This is your children burning. This is like the horror they were in. This is your cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody you know and love. That That's what remains of them. That's in their smoke. And they were underneath that smoke. And so they accepted it. And the girl said, we're going to heaven from here. And that's okay. And my grandmother said, you can go to heaven if you want. I'm going home from here. And they were like looking at her like, you're delusional. They said, you have to face reality. This is your life. We're going to heaven from here. Look what's surrounding us. They were in the smoke of a, of their family, literally in the fire. And my grandmother said, don't tell me to be realistic. I'm going where I want to go from here. And I want to go home from here. And they were just shaking their heads sadly. Like this girl is delusional. But when... I was 18 years old. I was the same age as my grandmother. I went to Auschwitz and I was standing and I figured I'm standing in the very place where she told her friends, I'm going home from here. And look, she did it. She went home from there and I'm standing here 18 years old. And she was the only one of her friends that came home. And I, I don't believe that it was convic conviction alone. And I'm not like, she would never be haughty enough to say that. I'm definitely not you know, smart enough to say conviction doesn't get you out of Auschwitz, but I believe it plays a role. And I believe that strong belief in yourself, pulling yourself out of things, no matter how hard they get and really go where you want to go. She wanted to go home. That's where she wanted to go home. She wanted to go and she worked the whole time she was there, she worked really, really hard to get herself there. And she did. And she, I was remember that feeling of standing there and I was like, I'm the same age as her. This is her story. This is her proof. She did it when everyone told her she's delusional. Wow. What ha I, I want to focus on after the war for your grandmother. The hollow, the you know the the horrors of the Holocaust and Auschwitz and and everything that happened there. That we we know that we we know that and and we don't need to go into that. Yeah. I'm curious for your grandmother, what what did her life look like after the war, when she you know when you know by liberation what what happened next for her? Tell me about the victories. She even had this mindset and she had this. Um this life right after the, the first moment that she was liberated. I don't know if you if you read the book, you see she came out from the bunker. She was in Trezenstadt. She was buried underneath the ground. And she said that they felt like they were buried alive. This was after a three week death march. They were starving. They were 
really, really defeated after a year of the Holocaust. And she, they were just laying there so she, they couldn't even talk anymore. They were just laying there for long. And then someone came in and they heard, it was a bunker underground. They heard on top of them shooting and, and bombs and whatnot. And they were just laying there, not really people anymore. And somebody came in and somebody said, girls, don't you know you're free? And she said they started laughing, like, not, like, from shock. What do you mean, we're free? They couldn't wrap their ears around that word. And the person said, yes, yes, you're free. And he opened up this, like, trap door almost, but they were underground in that bunker. And she said the light came in, and they started climbing out of this bunker. And she really felt like she was coming out of her grave. She was buried alive. And she said the first thing she saw, and she didn't see this when she went into the bunker 10 days before, the first thing she saw were wildflowers all over. And there were all colors, she said, just all colors all around her. And it, as I'm telling you this story, I'm hearing her. I think she was the most masterful storyteller. Just colors all over, all around her. And they were swaying in the wind and... She just saw these flowers for all of her eyes, like just miles and miles, she saw wildflowers. And it was May 8th, I believe. It was the spring and she said that she felt like those flowers were telling her, there's gonna be a life yet for you. You're gonna live, there's gonna be beauty for you. Even after all that you went through, you're going to have a life and it's going to be beautiful. And there's the world feels so desolate right now and horrible. And it's there's still going to be beauty in your future. Look at these beautiful flowers. She always said that's really what they told her. Um, and she felt like God was telling her, it's gonna be okay. Like that 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 hope of you're going to have more beauty in your life and more ease not always going to be like this and she felt like she really described it as saying she felt like she was coming out of her grave and coming back into life and when I wrote this when I wrote the book I didn't add it this part because she was still alive thank god but the day she was buried last year May 8th exactly 77 years since she came out of that so it was 77 more years of life for her. That's a, that's a heck of a lot of time. Yeah. And, uh, and she did have beauty, beauty in it. And, and a wonderfully full life also, yeah. you know, with, yeah. with your family and, and, you know, yeah. it's with everything that, that, that came out of, of, you know, of her. I, I want to shift focus a little bit for a second. Sure. I, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but like I'm getting emotional listening to this. Um, and and it's these are things that are hard to talk about. Holocaust yeah. books are hard to read. It's it's especially I think um, as excuse me, especially I think as people who have a, a family connection to it. I know that yeah. I personally would. I'm not going to say pretend it didn't happen, but I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about people who tried to kill my grandparents. Like that's just yeah. not some, that's not a place that I want 
my brain to go. And at the same time, it's really important to yeah. to know what happened. How 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 do you balance that? Like how do you uh, how do you approach that? Because you know these things are important and they're also really really difficult. Yeah, I had such a hard time and like the questions that you're bringing up now, I brought up to myself. I really resisted it. Um I as I was writing, because the, the, the truth is when I started writing, the stories that I got from my grandmother were so empowering. They were really empowering for me. And, and she never painted herself as a victim. And she never painted herself as like, I, I remember going to Auschwitz at 18 and I almost felt worse. I did feel worse for the Nazis than for the people that had to be murdered. Because a life that you can do that to other people, is, I would rather be murdered right away. And that's not a life worth living. You take this beautiful life full of opportunities and, and opportunities for connection and family and love and doing good things and, and living life. And if you can take that life and do that to other people with it, that is something to be pitied that you let yourself, because everybody has a choice. And you let yourself get to that place. I don't, I don't subscribe to, you know, the no choice thing that following orders. I don't think anyone does anymore, but you let yourself get to that place. That's, that's, that's how empowered my grandmother made me feel that because she was so empowered. She was like, it was never a victim thing. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing that had to happen to her, but her life was worth living so that helped me a lot even just hearing her stories um but then when I started writing it was brutal and I, I recently went to the one of the cafes that I spent hours writing in and I felt automatically sad like it just mm. brought back all those sad feelings and I was like it was it was really really brutal um almost to the point like I don't I, I don't know why I'm so drawn to tell these Holocaust survivor stories because I'm like, I'm so drawn to do it. And I think it's so important and it's brutal for me. It really is. I, I, it, it's, I'm not like a, I'm a, I'm not like a tough person. I'm very sensitive. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, and also, you know, hard, but I, I really felt the stories because once I was writing it, she started telling it to me in more detail. And it was horrible. Oh, interesting. Did you not yeah. know all of her story before you wrote the not book? Not know to that detail. Not, not at all. Um, and my brother-in-law, amazing, Donnie Mufflis, he recorded her telling her story from beginning to end, like over the course of two years. Um, so I would watch those recordings of like, I would have tons of stories growing up, but he put it all in order. And I was living in Israel at the time. So I would email him questions. And then he would take those questions and ask. And then we tried to build it up. A beginning, beginning, middle, and end. Um, and that she went into more detail. And then I had to ask her details on. She was adamant. And I was fully with her in this mission of not no whitewashing. Tell it how it was. There was one part that I left out. That was it, like, because that was, it was just too hard for me to tell. And I, I didn't feel like it was necessary 
Um, but other than that, like she was very adamant that we're not whitewashing this. This is the story, what happened to me and you have to know the truth. And so it was, it was kind of brutal the hearing. I would ask her questions, but what did you, what did it feel like that hunger? And I would really try to, in, 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 um, um, now I forgot who said this quote of poet, uh, Frost, like no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Right. And if you don't feel it, then you're not going to convey it in the story. And I really felt it. And I went into her experience, um, was kind of traumatic because I really, really felt it deeply. Um, and it was important to me to put that down, but I, I, so I, I was really questioning as I was writing for years. Um, to the point where I even like I asked I asked my grandfather not not from the other side my father's father I said why like I don't know if I, I should do this like I don't want to make people sad why, why don't we just live our lives go on with it you know that's it mm -hmm. why do we have to focus on the holocaust and um for me personally and he said no you have you do it it's going to give people inspiration and strength. Was he a survivor and, as well? And no. Um and but he knew her story. It, right. it was his um so he said it's gonna give people inspiration and strength and also it's important the Holocaust um memorial. And I also when I started writing didn't know how many people do not did not know what the Holocaust was. That was my grandmother's mission. She didn't know, they didn't know what, what happened. What type of, 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 see, this again, blows my mind because again, we're both, you know, granddaughters of survivors to not know the Holocaust seems to be right. like right. It, inconceivable. Like not knowing the Holocaust is like not knowing that Thanksgiving is a thing. Like it's just, that's exactly what I feel like. And it's feeling not knowing the Holocaust feels like not knowing how to breathe. Literally, it's just it's just yeah. part of it's just part, part of, of history. my part of my existence. Right. It's just, it's just there. I'm and my I, grandmother would always say, "People don't know. People are forgetting. People are forgetting." And I, I I'm embarrassed to say, but I used to be like, "Bobby, everybody knows what the Holocaust was. Stop it. What are you so scared of? Like something like as major as this, a genocide of six million people is not going to be forgotten. Like that wasn't even my mission." But when I was starting to write it, and it was so hard for me to write, I needed to find more reasons to write it. Besides for my internal, like, I don't know, I want to tell the story. So I I was researching and the numbers were staggering, astounding for me. I couldn't believe how many people didn't know about the Holocaust. And, and even I wrote it like five, six years ago. Today's is even worse. And there's no education about it in schools and things like that. But that's not, that was really her mission and it morphed into mine when, when I was writing to educate and I think it's important. But I think there's there's something even more for me. Um, I really believe that their stories are a part of us, especially if you're a grandchild. And, and, and not only if you're a grandchild, if you're a human being, I believe the stories of the people that, have, that came before us are a part of us today. And whether you know it or not, it's still going to be there. And so there's something empowering about knowing the story and you can avoid it and avoid it. And yeah, I don't know if you'll reach that, that 
I wouldn't say peace because it's not peace, but but that you have a purpose of uh, that. That's something that's part of you, and maybe I'm naive, but I do believe in a progressive world, and I do believe that we're getting, you know, a lot of people like and seeing how bad our generation is, but I do <clears throat> believe that we can work on continuing from the generations before. When you know your story, you know your strength. Um, you know, I also believe in intergenerational trauma and at the same time, intergenerational resilience. And I feel like if you know your story, you know what came before you, it's, it's, you're not a little slice in time that's not connected to the people before you or the people after you. I think it's very connected. We're all connected. And you're connected to, to what happened before us. So firstly, it's part of you, whether you know it or not. And when you know it, it's hard, but it's kind of empowering if you know it in the right way. And secondly, um, I believe that we can use it to make, I don't know if it's, it's cheesy, but I do believe, like I wrote in the bio of my Instagram, remembering yesterday's story to make tomorrow's better. And I don't think that that you, if you're going to read Holocaust books and just get down from it, like I took a break from Holocaust books. They're not for me right now. Like I'm a mom of three kids and I'm, I'm, I have to be happy and, and, you know, and I think that's important and boundaries. <laughs> that's good. Like, um, like, especially if they're down or down or books, but I think if a book that can fill you with hope, that's real, um, an agency, I think that is important. And I think that like, it's part of us anyway, so you might as well know what happened. And I do believe also, and my grandmother always says that her whole message is, is love each other more. And this only happened because we, we were so like, uh, this person's different and that person's different and so divided and so mean to each other. Um, and just because someone's born differently than you or, or anything like that, um, she was, her message was always like more acceptance, more love and however you know, it's a really hard thing to do because it's not easy to just, uh, obviously, but like, I think that's her, her, her message and her, her legacy. She loved people. And for someone to go through that and to see another person afterwards and love them, I think that's amazing. And I think that we, it's not just, I think it's, yeah, this is what happens when we don't, when we, we're, we're not kind to each other. And when we allow ourselves to feel higher up than somebody else. And um, I wanted to write down that message that my grandmother gave to me. And also I really wanted to, and I think it's empowering her story. I really wanted to write about someone who believed in themselves. And so they did it because it's so we get so many messages not to might as well get a message too. Right. You mentioned intergenerational trauma. I'm curious, does your family have any Holocaust holdovers, like things that you all do that are because of your grandmother's experiences in the war? Um, I think that it's funny because I was just talking to another Holocaust survivor and he's talking about like how he used to hide the, um, take the food out of the garbage. Mm -hmm. He's so hungry. 
that trauma of being so hungry and his wife was upset with him like hello it's garbage oh, you're saying he used to night. take the food out of the garbage like post-war afterwards yeah um. and his wife was upset at him and she and he said and she said uh you know and he would sneak out at night and take the food out of the garbage because she would let him during the day he couldn't stop it um yeah, and I also don't like as much, like, I don't like uh, whitewashing the Holocaust, and, and I don't like whitewashing afterwards, because it's not the, the full, it's not, this is the repercussions of what happens, like, my grandmother was so, she was really anxious afterwards, and it, like, obviously, like, that, that, that's, you know, from one day to the next, she was an 18-year-old girl, like, living her regular life. And the next day, she was in a ghetto. Everything stripped away from her. And then three weeks later, she was in Auschwitz. So it's not like they, they were able to, to live, like they had full lives, I believe, and love and, and, and amazing lives. But they, had, they, took them, they took that with them for the rest of their lives. They had to live with that. Um, she lost her baby brother who she loved a 13 year old brother she loved him so much i see my daughter now with her baby brother and that connection that they're making and that was ripped away from her and and i think no matter if she was like she was just love i would walk into the room she would light up our, our, our like her existence was just you walked in you felt seen you felt loved you felt Nothing else mattered. Come, come, Mama Shine. Come sit down. Stuffing food down your throat. <laughs> loving us. We just remember those cut up apples that she would peel for us. But she would peel them because she was scared we would choke on the on the thing. Everything was a fear. I, I would, there was a, she lived on an avenue. And I, every time I left, every time, cross the street safely. You know, it was always a, a, a fear. Um, so it had, her, her life had both. Um, Things were really, I don't think anybody could really be fully okay after that, but she was so much more than okay. She was better than okay. She was loving. Like, you know, she had struggles and she had her her trauma from that, but she, I think she had a life worth living more than a lot of people who didn't have those struggles and trauma because she was a giver. What do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned from her? Um, lately I've been thinking a lot about how, how, I don't want to sound like new agey and, and like woohoo because like, um, um, I wish I could be like, so, you know, enlightened, <laughs> but like, I'm really thinking a lot about how, how it's just about the love. It's just about the love and, and, um, being present just loving people it's really I'm not I'm not saying it from a place that I do that because I don't want to come off as that I do not <laughs> I'm, I'm very much a work in progress and um but that's what I learned from her because I, I don't know since she died I was like I don't think there was anything more valuable that that a, one person could do for another about the family and love and giving for other people and really making other people feel good. And um, we're so 
finding I could be so focused on other things and those things are important too and everything's a balance and and it's it's all a balance but I think what she taught me most since she passed away was that there's nothing as valuable as as that love as and put your effort into that it's not about your success not about your image or things like that nobody cares just but give your time and effort to the to the things like like your family and your relationships and um that last forever i love that this has been uh, this has really been an honor. It really has been yeah. to oh, thank you so much. There's that these stories are are important and and like I said before, yeah. they're it's hard to talk about. Um, but I'm really I'm really grateful that I got the chance to, um, to learn more about your grandmother and her story through, yeah. uh, this whole conversation. If somebody wants to connect more with you, and we should mention with Rosie, that's her name, your grandmother. Uh, yeah. Where can they go? Um. So her story, I wrote. It's, you know, wherever books are sold. It's called The Reddit of Auschwitz. You can get it on Amazon. Um, so she was really, really passionate about people reading her story and knowing her story. This is her goal and her dream. And so um, read her story if you can. It's on Amazon. And she was a, she was a force. She was a character. And it's not a, it's not a Holocaust story that will leave you feeling down I don't believe because she was she wasn't a downer she was so full of hope to her last breath um so she really wanted to that's like the best way to get to know her get in touch um, I do have an Instagram that I you know put videos of her on I'm thinking of interviewing other Holocaust survivors and putting it on there it's called the redhead of Auschwitz also and I'm gonna link all of that in the show notes uh, and definitely do take advantage of that and uh Go read the book. Get to know Rosie a little bit. It's uh, she's she's really lovely, and it's and it's fantastic hearing about her through your eyes. Uh, the last thing that I want to ask is what I ask everyone who comes on the show: What does it mean to you to make an impact? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that we're all just trying to figure it out, but I do believe that there's something about doing what you want and using your your abilities in a positive way, in a way that makes you feel happy. Not like depleting you, but like like in a way that do what you want in a way that uplifts other people. Don't try to fit into the mold of what other people are. You can really be a light to other people, I think, only when you are yourself. So just I love be that. Yourself. Thank you so much for coming on today, Nahama. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Nahama or get the book, the links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I spoke with Kylie Orlobel about her love story and conversion to Judaism. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are currently in stock at sizes 2 through 24 and coming up to size 28 so soon by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fatman. This episode was produced 
produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.